Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. We call ourselves Journey 66 for a reason. That's because we believe that writing and publishing a book is a journey, a long one. You start with enthusiasm and anticipation, and suddenly you hit a roadblock. You get stuck. Today on our podcast, we have Linda Pfeiffer, who recently published her debut novel, The Road Between Two Skies. Linda talks with us candidly about her writing journey, which spanned over a decade. She talks about the heartache of losing a manuscript and having to start over, the gift of revising, and also the doubts about self-publishing. She also provides great insight into developing a narrative arc, three-dimensional characters, and setting. Today's episode is a must for every writer who is on a journey to publish a book for the first time. Welcome, Linda, to the podcast. We are so excited to talk with you about your debut novel, The Road Between Two Skies. Welcome, welcome. Thank you very much. It's such a great honor to be with you guys today. So we want to start out by asking you about your novel, The Road Between Two Skies. Can you tell us a little bit about it and also just how you got started on the writing journey, not necessarily with this book, but how long have you been writing for and when did you know you were a writer? I'm not sure I ever knew I was a writer, but I've been around people who write. My dad wrote on a newspaper. My sister wrote uh, nonfiction books and published. Probably the beginning was junior high school, writing poems, writing short stories that weren't very good, but it was good practice, right? As I got older, I was able to use those, those poems as lyrics for songs, so I wrote songs, and then... Uh, this this book started in 2009, so it's been a while that I've been working on it. Finished it in 2016, sat there going, well, now what? And then proceeded to approach a friend of mine who also writes and does editing. And she read the book, gave lots of good suggestions, edited it well and said, you need to publish this. Well, it had never occurred to me that I would publish it. It was just a fun thing to do for me. So then it sat for another four or five years while I'm thinking, how do I publish a book? And finally, I heard enough good things through Writer's Digest and from your website about self-publishing isn't the nasty little black hole that it used to be. And so I went with an inquiry to Atmosphere Books, who seemed to be very supportive of writers. 
Writer's Digest seemed to like them too. And that's that was last spring. And now I have a book. That's fantastic. I love that you shared how long the journey was for you. I think that that's hugely encouraging to writers who feel like maybe they're never actually going to get their book published or even written. It mm-hmm. sounds like it took you yeah. seven years or so to to write the book and then a few more to actually push it across the publishing finish line. Can you tell us a little bit about what the book is about just mm-hmm. to entice our readers, our listeners, okay. excuse me? Well, the first line that I ever wrote was, I have two names, Brennis and Maggie, and that's how the story starts. This is a woman who has is at the apex of her career. She's a, an archivist at New York Library. She's on a specific project of authenticating a letter by Alexander Hamilton, which was all in this before the musical ever arrived in the real world. So it looks like I'm copying that, but he copied me, if you really want to know. I watched her be very, very positive, very confident in her in her approach to this, to establish her character. Um, she's also getting married in a week. And so on the way out from the final dress fitting, she's walking to her car, she gets kidnapped, and her world stops as Brennis. She wakes up in a hospital about a week later, not knowing who she is. She doesn't know where she is. They tell her she's in Arizona. She doesn't know what an Arizona is. And that's where her journey begins of trying to recover who she is right now. Then as more memories and those demons come into her life and she tries to resolve them, she discovers more about who she was and then trying to find where she belongs. So in in some ways, it's a coming-of-age story for this woman who has lost everything that was important to her, has to find new values, new things that she cares about, and does so, and at some point is in a conflict of whether she likes Maggie or Brennis better and not sure if she wants to lose one or the other. That is a great point of conflict. We always talk about tension in writing, and that is, I, you probably are able to sustain that all the way through the novel. That That's so awesome. Can you tell me what kind of research you did for this book to make your characters believable? And even this, I, I, I assume she had amnesia, so this amnesia event seemed realistic. I am a retired speech language pathologist. So I worked with adults for most of my career. And these were people who had brain injuries or had neurological problems that created problems with memory. So I know I have a lot of firsthand experience from how memory works and all the different kinds of memories there are out there. It's just not, oh, I remember Aunt Edna. No, it's what brings about those memories that makes the connection or the trigger that expands into that world. It's not just Aunt Edna, but it's being at my grandmother's house or or Christmas parties or that's all of what memory is. So I try to be as realistic as possible using that experience. I've been fascinated by stories of people who are who have a wonderful life, family, have a wonderful job. And they disappear one day and nobody knows where they are. 
and maybe 20 years later, they're found in another state with no knowledge of their previous life. So this was kind of a take on that, and maybe not a realistic one, I don't know. It remains to be seen, but I think it captures how people try to recover from those things, as well as the emotions involved and the conflict with who I am versus who I was. I love that. I have a quick question. So as it relates to your writing of this book, what was the darkest moment for you in the writing of it where you were stuck and you were, and you wondered whether you'd ever get out of that place and maybe some details around that. Okay. Have I got a story for you? I was about two thirds of the way through the book and there comes a point where there's a trial. I didn't want to recount all of the information that the reader already knows. And I was stuck on how to present it in a way. So I had put the, the uh, 30 some chapters down. I'd, I'd taken them with us, my husband and I on a trip. I read it to him on the plane. I had it there at, if I needed to write on something, never got to it, got back put it aside so I could think about how to deal with this, how to, how to work through. And when I finally get the idea of how I'm going to do this, I go to look for the chapters and they're gone. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Wanda. So that was pretty dark. And so what I had to do, part of the reason it took so long, I had to rewrite those 30 chapters, which gave me a chance to reorganize emphasize things that I realized were far more important than what I put down, uh, create more in-depth characters. So it was a good challenge for me. When I got to the point where I, I got to the, the courtroom scenes, my husband found the chapters that he had misplaced and put aside after our trip. So then I had to take another six, eight months to consolidate the two sets of chapters but each time I realized I was making improvements on this book. So even though it was dark, I felt that I had a better set of, of situations and conversation and character depth that I didn't have in the first rough draft. I love that, Linda. I love that. So were you writing by hand? You weren't typing. You were writing by hand. Is that what I understand from this? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That is true. Okay. And I will, I will tell you that I will say that this novel wrote me because there were times I would just sit down with a pen and or a pencil and I'd start writing and it would just flow. And I don't know where it came from, but it just came out. And I'd have maybe three or four chapters at the end of whatever that happened in my brain. So, of course, shuffling that around takes time. I've learned now, I, I've finished a second book already, and, and my pandemic book, I guess. And I did use a typewriter for that. But computer glitches, I thought I was highlighting something and I hit the erase button. So I erased the last 40 chapters of that. And so, <laughs> but you recovered, and I think that's the hope in I all did. of this. I, I did. I love that you shared that story. We talk about this in Road Trippers a lot, like handwriting versus typing. What happens when you lose something and you have to go back and rewrite it? And what I hear you saying is that it's really an opportunity 
to develop your plot line, to develop your characters. And so as hard as it may be to embrace it as an opportunity, that's what I hear you saying is it can really be an opportunity. Exactly. And certainly have and improvement, a chance for improvement of what you had before and not being afraid to change it. What drives you to persist? Like, did you ever go, ah, no, I'm, I'm really done now. And, and you turn to some other hobby. There's something that is driving you to write. And what is that? I have always contended that this book wrote me. The characters were so likable. And I liked what they did. And I liked what they stood for. They kept nudging me to keep going. Those characters that, yeah, I created them, but they took on a life of their own. And I wanted to see them to the end. I wanted to be truthful to them and make sure those characters got the resolution they needed. Can you tell us a little bit about how you think about developing characters? We're talking all the time with our our writers who want to publish novels in particular to create complex characters, not one-dimensional characters. And it sounds like you've done that. And I'm wondering if you have any advice on, on how to do that or questions to ask or things to look for to make sure that you're not creating flat one-dimensional characters. I have always looked at my characters in the light of if they aren't convincing to me, they won't be convincing to the reader. And I have to like my characters. I have to even the undesirable ones, I have to understand them. And I don't, I don't have to care about them as much. I don't have to pull things from them that they don't want to give me. But sometimes I will use kind of a muse, I will get a mental picture of what this person looks like. I know exactly what Riley's ranch looks like. He's the one of the people who found Brennis, who becomes Maggie, he finds her alongside the roadway where she's been discarded, and he and the sheriff take her to the hospital recovery there. He offers to take her to his ranch, which is rather large. I can see what that place looks like. That's a character for me, too. They raise horses. I can see those horses. And if, if I can picture them, then I can look at the details of what color the ears are, um, how how many trees are on near the front porch, where the second floor is in relation to the to the living room. Those are things that are part of that as well as fleshing out the characters. So with Brennis, I had to write her in a way that was confident and skilled until that moment. Maggie had to be, Maggie had to be starting all over. Everything's a wonder. She gets her words mixed up. She gets confused about simple things. An example is Riley tells her, well, once the light goes on, things will come together. You'll understand once the lights go on. And she she's, writes in her diary, I don't know if that's true because I turned on the light in the in the closet at the hospital and all I saw were my feet. So the idea of being so literal, I had to show that in the character, not only in language, but how she walks, how she carries herself. And for me, I had to picture that. So I guess it's knowing your character inside out. 
enough that if you saw that character walking towards you on the street, you would know that was Maggie or you would know that was Riley or some of the other characters. I love what you're inferring through all of this. It has to do with story showing or showing versus telling and that it's a bit of a cliche in fiction writing is showing versus telling. But I thought, I think you gave some really great examples of how to do that. Do you have any other advice on how to show versus tell? It's really hard for me. Initially, that first draft probably was really crappy because that's all I did was tell. But by the second draft, I was getting more the idea of if I show it, it's easier to understand and easier to connect to. So ways that I do that is by dialogue and using the setting, as I said, as a character. So for instance, usually there's a storm approaching when there's going to be a conflict or when there's going to be a change in in perception of what's going on. There is a character of a a cougar in this in this landscape that also portends changes coming. So I, I use foreshadowing, I use character development of in variety of scenes so that you see that person opening different doors to themselves, I guess. Linda, I'm really impressed by your your mastery of literary conventions such as foreshadowing and even symbols. I mean, in many ways, the the landscape becomes a symbol, or as you said, the mm-hmm. cougar becomes a symbol of something larger at play. And that's very sophisticated. A lot of new writers don't do that. How mm-hmm. were you cognizant of that from the beginning, or is that something that came later on in your drafts that you worked on? as you revised? As I revised, I saw myself having more, more skill. I guess, I guess the way I look at it is there's the creative process and then there's the, crea- the crafting process. And the creating part process is getting that story down, getting those sequences of events that are believable and you care about and you, you want to see happen. The crafting is taking those details and slipping them inside that person so that you hear more, you see more, you experience more with that person as if he or she were right next to you. So I saw myself growing as I wrote it. And maybe that's why I had to write it three different, four different, five different times so I could get where it is now. As you wrote the story, let's talk about the arc of the story. And let's talk about where the story ends, the, where the kind of the final resting place okay. of the story. There's the denouement they talk about, which is what happens after the story is over, kind of. The, so how did you think about how the story would end? And when did you know how the story would end? I wanted to see Brennus turn into Maggie And then Maggie faced with, who do I want to be? And what really happens is Brennus finally accepts Maggie and Maggie accepts Brennus so that she is both personalities that she can combine together. Only way she does that is by going back to New York, where she's from, to reconnect with her mom and to reconnect with her 
fiance, there is conflict with those relationships. Only, only Brennis and Maggie can figure it out. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's how I kind of knew that that would be close to the end when Brennis accepts Maggie and Maggie accepts Brennis. They find a way to connect together to make herself whole. And then where she belongs, where where she knows she can be as both personalities, as both people. Maybe I've watched too many Hallmark movies in recent days. <laughs> and you have the stories of the women who have amnesia and they have a boyfriend back home and then they have to, they kind of realize who they really are and they have to figure out if they want to be with the new person or their fiance. But when you told me, when you were talking about the plot line, I immediately wanted to know, does she end up marrying that guy? And so, you know, and you innately create some tension from the very beginning that I would imagine pulls the reader through to the very end, because as a reader, I'm dying to know what happens to that person that she was in love with that she was going to marry. Yeah. And what's going to, and will she ever go back to that job mm-hmm. researching Hamilton? So mm-hmm. I think you did, mm-hmm. su- you do such a great job setting up the tension that you can pull throughout the entire story. So yes, don't give it away, but I can tell you that I'm engaged just hearing about the plot line. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad to hear that. I, to me, it was kind of a conventional story. Boy meets girl, girl disappears, boy goes crazy girl meets another person, what, you know, what's going to happen? So yeah, kind of conventional, but I didn't want it to seem, I didn't want it to seem like a Hallmark movie in that respect. I wanted it to be more complicated and more unpredictable and something that you really care about as it goes along. You don't know who to root for, or maybe you do, and you see the conflicts and you don't know how it's going to be resolved that that's what I was hoping. I will say my husband is reading this right now. I geared it, of course, to women readers. Now, my husband may be a little biased, but he's actually enjoying it. He's a former policeman, and there are things in there that I I relied on some of his knowledge. But through the solving of the crime and the, the courtroom scenes and all of that, that make part of that problem solving a little more sophisticated than just, oh, you know what? I guess I'm going to marry this person after all or whatever. Well, that's what a writer does, right? A writer takes standard, either coming of age or whatever the plot is, and you put twists on it, right? So it's not like you're reinventing, what, what do they say? Some people say there's only three plots. Some people say there's nine. Uh, eight or nine, I forget what the number is. So it's not like you're coming up with a, a new plot, but you're, it is a new plot because it, one, it's your plot, and two, that you're putting all this fresh, like the two Maggies. I just love what you're, what you're doing with that. Just reiterate that you use the word convention, you know, and you, and I think that's such a great word. Like, how can you, as Dave said, make the convention not so conventional? And how can you add complexity to it? And how can you be intentional about adding layers and and these conflicts within the story to kind of create plot twists? And so, yeah, I want to compliment you on that. That's really encouraging, I think, for our audience who are really for the first time thinking about creating a plot and how to take a conventional story that's been told a million times before and make it their own and interesting. Even to a police officer. 
Really? Yes. A retired police officer. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate your feedback. I live in a small rural town in Montana. Montana is not known for having literary agents around the corner. So getting feedback like this is really, really valuable to me. Well, you deserve that positive feedback. And it's just really encouraging to our our audience. Like I've been saying, can we talk just a little bit about theme? We talk about theme with our writers, that there has to be some kind of governing idea that is woven throughout your book. It's kind of the why of your book. Like, why are you writing this book? What do you want people to get from this book? And could you talk about that? Like maybe what it is you wanted people to get from the book and how you were cognizant of that throughout the writing of the book? Initially, I wasn't aware of a theme. I was more aware of the situation and not resolved. But as I wrote, I realized was along the lines of self-acceptance and believing in yourself and finding finding a reason in yourself to make each day good instead of looking to others to define that for them. So for instance, Maggie initially is so dependent on everyone in her immediate environment. She has to rely on others to help her remember things like if she ate or if she fed the horses or if she fed the dog. And there's a chapter where she forgets if she's for- fed the dog poke. And so she feeds him six times because no one's around. But that experience teaches her to rely more on herself and look at the cues around her so that she sees herself worth. I guess that's really the the theme. And that was something that this book helped me feel too. Thank you for ending on that really positive and encouraging note. We've so enjoyed having you on our podcast. This is going to be such an encouraging episode for so many of our listeners. So thank you so much. I thank you for being so patient and guiding me with some some really great questions. I quite enjoyed being the center of attention for a little while. Thank you so much. We need you to be the center of attention after all those drafts. It's your time in the sun right now. So I think that's awesome. Well, if you are interested, of course, it's on Amazon right now. And I can order a copy through there. Or if you want, contact me directly through my website, lspfeifferauthor.com. And I would be glad to arrange to get a signed copy to you. That's That's fantastic. That's a great offer. I hope people take you up on it because the story sounds amazing. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, Dave, let's turn to our words of the episode. I'm going to go first. I have a word that I learned this week through Instagram. Somebody shared this in their Instagram stories and they got their hands on a dictionary from the Victorian era. And one of the words was morbs. And you use it like this. I've got a case of the morbs and it actually means a temporary melancholy or feeling a bit low. So I like that. I've been using it with my friend. I've got a case of the morbs. It it feels very current. I actually think it sounds like some sort of slang term that the now generation would be using. It's related to the word morbid, which means abnormally 
susceptible or characterized by gloomy or unwholesome feelings. So again, another word for the melancholy number four, Melissa, (laughs) what's your word of the episode, Dave? (laughs) So here's why I love that is that because so often our whole society has all these psychological designations for things, or he's a melancholic, or they, they, they can make that into a negative. I think the human condition is sometimes you have a case of the morbs, right? Right. And it's temporary. I love yes. that, that, that adjective temporary. Just sometimes you you feel a little blue and that's all right. That's part of the human condition. And you don't know why sometimes, like often in the fall, I'll, there'll be a, I'll have a time. It might not stay with me all day, but there's a great sense of sadness because I feel I'm living in the suburbs of Chicago and I'd rather be living in Montana or back in North Dakota out in the West. Right. And, and I, cause I know the emotion of being in the West during this time. So I might have a case of the morbs, but it doesn't last that long. So. Or a case of the morbs because it's football season and none of your boys are playing football anymore. So oh, there's maybe yes. a longing, right. Or just a underlying yes. sense of loss. Right. That's the gonna, best word you've you've ever brought to the episode. Really? It, yeah. it feels like one that we can use pretty naturally in our conversation from day to day. So yours looks to be like one that you could use pretty easily in a conversation too. What's your word of the episode, Dave? So mine is accession. And A-C-C-E-S-S-I-O-N, accession. When I first saw it, I thought it was accession, right? But it's accession. And a synonym would be ascension, like a king or queen ascends to the throne. It's the attainment or acquisition of a position, you know, of rank or power. So the second meaning is like this new item that you add to an existing collection of books, paintings, or artifacts. I might add fly rods. So it's the accession to the library of fly rods, all my fly rods. So it's, it's an addition to. So accession. That sounds like a word that I should be using frequently because I'm always adding something to my existing collection. Like I have an accession of alabaster bird baths and I want to have it grow to 50 by the time I'm 50. I'm going to be using that word, Dave. Thanks for the new word. (laughs) We've got two great words this time. I have a quick question for you. What's the difference between ascension and accession? It's not much because I looked them up and I don't think Ascension has this second meeting. It doesn't have that. Okay. But so where I got the word, by the way, I'm still reading Catherine the Great by Robert Massey because I stop and then I go into another. I have about, I'm always in the middle of five to eight books because I'm ADD, right? I stop and I start and stop and start. So I'm back to my Catherine the Great. And that's where I got that phrase, the accession to power and how she rose to accession. So, and then I looked up the word ascension. It's close because somebody ascends to power and that would be probably a verb, but there's ascension, right? Which is similar to the, to this ION ending accession. So I would say it's a close synonym. All right. Well, that is a great way to end our episode. I hope that you all come back for our next episode. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.